Good evening. On this week's programme, The Ballad of the Crimson Warrior. Mike Hanrahan on his new musical film, which pays tribute to the men and women of our cultural revolution through song, art and poetry. Also, when I was growing up, I think that most people in America believe the government. And I think that there was very much of a mindset of believing the government. I think Vietnam changed that and certainly changed that for me. Historian Joseph E.A. Connell joins me to talk about his own career in the U.S. military and the legacy of the Vietnam War. We begin this evening with a new short film celebrating the creative women and men of our great Irish cultural revolution. The film is called The Ballad of the Crimson Warrior and it pays tribute to rebels and innovators, writers and fighters who challenged a nation to reawaken its own spirit. Its musical narrative of original songs and traditional tunes illustrated with uh, portraits of the revolutionary years created by the acclaimed Irish artist Mick O'Dea. And this song is performed by Mike Hanrahan and Cy O'Sullivan. It's called The Crimson Warrior. Ancient fire on the hillside I am ember come lay me down Ancient thunder all along the night sky I am courage, come lay me down We are daughter and son of the Crimson Warrior Sister and brother of the Crimson Warrior Cross the fields all along the valley Oh, you of freedom, come lay me down Sacred tree, now rest me easy Come gather round, come lay me down We are daughter and son of the Crimson Warrior Sister and brother of the Crimson Warrior
So take my hand and guide me over Ancient warrior, come lay me down For you I go now into the clearing For you alone I'll lay me down For you alone I'll lay me down For you alone I'll lay me down For you alone, I'll lay me down. song The Crimson Warrior performed by Mike Hanrahan and Sive O'Sullivan that features in the new short film The Ballad of The Crimson Warrior and uh, Mike Hanrahan joins me in studio. I'm also joined by our very own Liz Gillis, South Dublin County Council historian in residence. Who is The Crimson Warrior Mike? I guess The Crimson Warrior is the warrior of centuries really. The character was uh, influenced by and inspired by Paddle Clancy. Uh, a Clare volunteer who he was an outfitter in Dublin and he's a place and he started to work in Clare and then moved his way up to Dublin and then joined the volunteers from the farm in Rotunda and he was very much involved he was right, right at the heart of, of the fight in 16 he ended up in prison after 16 and, and came back and he was uh, he moved up the ranks in Dublin in, in the battalions and very much part of the, the centre of the clique in around Collins and in the decision making so he was a very very important character. I liked his story. And then I thought it would have been nice just to write a story about all the warriors who were around over the centuries, right through people who were trying to get to where they were. And I got the Crimson Warrior because Clancy's name is translated as the Ruddy Warrior. And I just thought Ruddy wasn't really that uh, poetic. Could be misinterpreted. <laughs> it could be anything. <laughs> so I, I just changed it to Crimson Warrior. And then, yeah, it, it's a tribute to him and, and, and people like him. And then, I really felt when I'd finished the song that I needed to hear the voice from the women because my film is very much aimed at, at shining a light on the women of the revolution. So I wanted to hear uh, the female voice coming back at me and re- responding to, to the Crimson Warrior as he says, he's, he's, it's over for him, he can do no more, did I do okay? That's basically the tenet of his. And I rang Sive, uh, my friend Sive, great songwriter, excellent entertainer and a great writer. She, she just writes lovely songs. And she came back and, and did the, her part of it. So I thought, oh, yeah, this is it's just ideal for what I wanted to do. Of course, the other big collaboration is with Mick O'Dea. So there's a lot of wonderful rostrum camera work and a lot of wonderful images which have been created uh, by, by Mick O'Dea. So, I mean, at what point did you get together with him? Well, I've known Mick all our lives. We've, we've grew up together and our families are, are, are connected, interconnected. My parents and his parents come from the same parish. So we grew up together, we, we played hurling and football and a bit of music and I've always watched his career as an artist, I've seen it from day one. 
when he was a teenager. I've watched him progress from exhibition to exhibition and I knew he was doing a lot of the exhibitions on, on the, the period, particularly from 16 on. And he did an amazing one on the Black and Tans. So I asked him, he, was come, he came to a couple of my history shows that I did in the, the libraries of Clare over the last few years. And I asked him, would he, could I use his imagery? Because I really wanted this show to be the artist's response to the artists uh, of 100 years on. Because for me, it was the artists involved in the revolution that, that drew me in and their story drew me in and, and their courage and bravery of what they achieved because they were going after their own sense of themselves and they were bringing Ireland back to its people through its culture. And I felt that if I was going to finish my studies from this period of our history, it had to be the artist's response 100 years on. And that's why I asked Mick and he was delighted. Liz, I think it would be fair to say that you are obsessed with the period of the War of Independence. <laughs> I don't think it would be unfair to say that anyway. Um, and a lot of the imagery, the music, uh, the imagery in the songs, but also the imagery, Mick O'Dea's imagery, resonated with you. Oh, yeah. Um, like when Mike sent me the video to have a look at, because we're doing a Q&A, Jordan Tradfest, wasn't mm. it? So I was looking at it for the first time and hearing the song was like, this is absolutely amazing. All the songs are fantastic, but Crimson Warrior in particular just resonates with me. And I'm looking at mixed images and they're flashing up. And I'd seen that exhibition on the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries that Mick did a couple of years back. And it's an amazing exhibition. But because the song's about Patter Clancy and... He really gets overlooked in this period, despite the fact that he's so important and he's killed on Bloody Sunday. And But yet he gets lost in that whole story of Bloody Sunday. And the image of Padre Clancy comes up. Next of all, another image comes up. And it's of Ormond Winter, who is the okay, guy... OK, you'll have to explain who Ormond Winter is, described by the British civil servant Mark Sturgis. I think he used the word snake. That's right. Yeah, one of the names for him. Uh, his other uh, name was the Holy Terror. And with a name like that, you can tell he wasn't a nice person. But he's over intelligence. He, when the British reorganised intelligence in 1920, after Collins had wiped out the G-men, he's sent over to reorganise. And it's his men that he brings over from England and abroad that are the intelligence operatives that get assassinated on the morning of Bloody Sunday. So he's based in Dublin Castle. And in Dublin Castle, it's where McKay, Padder, Clancy and Dick McKay, with Conor Clown, are then killed in the guardroom. But he's overseeing all of this. So you see Padder Clancy, you listen to this beautiful song that, that Mike has written and Sai's voices is coming in. And next of all, just this image of Ormond Winter. And it's a very striking image. It's a very um, striking face. He is. Monocle, very, very bold. And yeah, definitely a striking face. And my reaction, I won't repeat what the, the word I use, but it was like, <laughs> oh my God, yes. This is, is just between Mike's song and Mick's images that Mike actually chose. They just marry together beautifully. And in the song, the one about the First World War, where you've got Francis Ledwich yes. in, and there's beautiful imagery that makes people, when you see those images it makes you go, who is that? Why are they there? And the whole film is a journey of that whole period. And using mixed images, it just enhances it and brings it all to life and makes people question. And who's responding to who, Mike? Are you responding to Mick O'Dea's images? Did he create images in response to some of your music? How did it work? No, I had, I had the show written and then I had the privilege of getting countless works from Mick 
on digital form into my house and I was sitting down watching them for days and days and trying to figure out which one would fit in. I knew certain ones I wanted. I knew the Ledwidge one for me. I really wanted Mark Ledwidge because of his connection with Tomás McDonough because McDonough was one of my favourite people of, of 16. Because the Ledwidge image is very striking. He's basically really? standing almost yes. like in the middle of Passchendaele. There's nobody else there, just himself. And the bitterness Quite a distance there. image as and well. And the bitterness there, the, the bird. Ah, know? right, of course. And it's that because he'd written a poem he shall not hear the yeah, bishop yeah, cry yeah, and while the sky that, where he is that, laying. Yeah. And I used to use that poem in, when I did the show in 16 with Brendan uh, Begley. We, we recited that poem. So when I saw the piece, I thought, oh, I know where that has to be. So I guess some of the pieces just, they put themselves into their positions mm. quite naturally. And then for the Craggy Hill one, it was like he actually drew that specially for me for this film. Liz, has there been much collaboration of the type that we're talking about between between artists uh, in relation to the War of Independence or between artists and historians? Yeah, Decade Centenary's Miles has been absolutely brilliant in opening these collaborations. And I've been involved with a lot of artists since 2016 with different things, whether it's uh, playwrights, writers, singers, songwriters. And what it has done, it is just brought the history to a completely new audience and everyone has an interpretation of the events that happened in our past and history, it just also shows history is not just to be found in books. It is through our poetry. Just the way Mike has honoured the artists of the revolution who were part of that cultural revolution that became involved in that political revolution and beyond and they're doing it 100 years on and they're collaborating with the historians 100 years on. So it's bringing everything together. And just the creativity is unbelievable. What is being produced is amazing. And I've seen younger audiences, like kids are getting involved through art. And it's just opening it all up, making history accessible. And that's what it's all about. So it's been brilliant. I think think the government support has been really crucial. I couldn't have made this film without the help of Culture Ireland. I mean, we tried several places to get funding for it and we couldn't get it. And I went to Culture Ireland and they came with us all along the way. So without that government support for the last 10 years, and it is so great to see so much happening. For someone like me who just, I was on the side just reading away books that was fascinated by this period of history. And suddenly you're able to go to see other things and hear other people talk about. And it's all because of this support. And I, I really believe it's what the president said, that the country actually, we took possession of our history in the last 10 years the people took possession of themselves and that's really beautiful and that's a lot a lot of thanks to the the foresight of of some great people in in the department I think and Mike a lot of the Irish revolution inspired other revolutions Mm. other anti-colonial revolutions and you reflect that in the music I think in the use of instruments yeah what I wanted to do as well, because it was, I was fascinated to read that in the Commons there was a report about the Egyptian Sinn Féin were up in arms. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, this is amazing. And then you discovered, well, the African Sinn Féin were up in arms as well. So Sinn Féin had really got into their, in under their skin, you know, uh, Collins and, the boy, and, and his crew. And so I thought it would be great. And then there's a tune called O Rosha de Vahawalia, which we all know, it, but mm. it's actually a battle tune that goes back hundreds of years and I wanted to use the chorus in that and use that as the kind of the salute to the people all over the world so we got the music and we played music tonal like phrases from 
Egyptian music and things and tried to mix it into the the Orosha Devahwalia. And that was due to sincere thanks to Aldock, my pal, who who filmed this and recorded the music and, and played on it. He was amazing. And an important aspect of the music and the film for you, I know, is paying tribute to the women of the revolution who have been kind of left out of the equation a lot over the last hundred years. Not not now, in fairness, not now. But that was important to you as well. Oh, huge. I mean, I did. I used to say in, 60, in 2016 when I was on the show that if I wasn't that stupid, I'd have thought there was no women were even around in, in 1916 <laughs> with the history we were given. And thankfully, people like Liz are just... The stuff that's coming out and the, the research and, and they're giving us all these amazing books and an insight into the courage of the women. And for me, I really want to remark it. I, I've read a lot of the stories, mainly thanks to Liz, of the women involved in the revolution. And then, of course, there was, for me, Eve Gore Booth inside in the middle of it all. And she's just, to me, is oh, amazing person, what she was doing 100 years ago, fighting for the rights of women in the way she was with underground magazines and, and writing beautiful work in that magazine, the Urania magazine. What she was trying to do was give that voice to, to the women of the time. So she, I use her poem in, in, in the piece before I, I sing this song called Craggy Hill, which is basically dedicated to women and I had this image of the craggy hill my grandmother's house in the back of her house was a craggy hill and I had this image that this is where we as a nation left the women of the revolution after 1922 mm. and we just cast them aside and we forgot about them and that's how the sense I got because when I was reading all this stuff I couldn't believe these amazing people all over the country uh, thousands of women who were, who were involved and we never knew about them and I just felt this this is a guy coming back to the craggy hill saying look at like, we're sorry, you know. So basically, and, after the revolution, it was back to the kitchen. Yeah, that's it. And that's the way it was. Couldn't sit on juries. Nothing, they couldn't do anything, <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. So that's what Craggy Hill is, is a celebration of them being found up in this hill and saying, yeah, we know you're there. Liz, there aren't that many songs <clears throat> about the Irish Revolution about women, written about women, are there? No. You have The Soldiers of Coming to Mon, which is a great song. It was written, I think, in 1916 by Brian mm. O'Higgins. Yeah. You've got Grace... Jim McCann. But there's not actually a lot of songs about the role that women played. It's always in the supporting role, the mother and the the Irish soldier boy and stuff and Zion Rebel. But it's it's always women are, you know, the support, as in they're the mother or the daughter or the the, the wife. Or the the ones who were left behind, basically. Yeah, but not... You know, not participating. Telling, yeah, of what the women actually did, apart from the soldiers uh, coming along, which is a brilliant, brilliant song. And it should be played more because it does recognise the role of women at that time in the revolutionary movement. But um, yeah, we, we need a few more um, because they did an awful <laughs> well, lot got, on their own, right? You've, you've got one more now. We'll, we'll hear <laughs> yes, it and uh, it's brilliant. on the it's way brilliant. out. We'll hear, we'll hear Craggy Hill. But uh, Mike, finally, what are your plans for the film? Well... You know, when you do something and I've lived with this for eight years and studying and, and then you get the film done and I'm I'm terrible at the next part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I really am terrible. Uh, like it's done and I'm really happy and now I've got to try and get it out to people. So I'm I'm, I'm working with a few people to try and uh, promote it. Uh, it's not my best. Uh, I'm not really great at that side of it. But there's people in America looking for it. In Milwaukee, showed it in January. The Milwaukee Fest, the Arkansas Irish Fest are want to show it. And they want to bring me back out to Milwaukee as well. And, and then we're going to spread it around to a few people. We had it in the Shoda Festival a few week, couple of weeks ago. And we'll, we're going to have to spread it around to other centres. I'm going to 
UL in Limerick to, to do a showing. And wherever I can, we can manage it, if the finances give us a chance, Liz is going to join me and we're going to do a Q&A because we did a Q&A in Dublin and honest to God, the two of us would have been, we'd still be there talking. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... It was just a lovely, a lovely event and the people stayed and, and it, it adds another layer onto the presentation. So I just want to get the, the film out there and that's really what I want to do. OK, well, let's finish with uh, Craggy Hill. We know what it's about and what you're uh, doing is what the cultural revolutionaries did for a whole generation of young men and women over a century ago, telling us our story through all sorts of different methods, methods which are, are centuries old through music, through song, through art, through poetry, obviously through film, which isn't, uh, which isn't centuries old. Uh, my guests are Mike Hanrahan and Liz Gillis, and this is The Craggy Hill. On a craggy hill, a long ago winter's morning We watched the sun Hanging with the moon We thought this bloody war Would soon be over One day soon, he said One day soon For you and me This war never ended We fought side by side And soon we turned the gun in this bitter, twisted world of our envy Is the battle ever won? I often think about you in the springtime On a summer breeze when I hear the cuckoo shrill When the autumn falls around me like a thunder I hear you now on Craggy Hill We left our dreams Somewhere on the hillside Where the hazel and the wildflower bloom Ever since that day we parted I lay down with the ghost of you Ghost of you, you the poet who wrote about her comrades, you the artist who painted her in still, you a vanquished revolution. I hear you now on Craggy Hill. Hill. 
We're with you now on Craggy Hill. Mike Hanrahan there performing The Craggy Hill. After the break, I'll be joined by American historian Joseph E. A. Connell to talk about his own career in the U.S. military and the legacy of the Vietnam War. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. My next guest is historian and author Joseph E. A. Connell. Joe is a native of the United States, but a regular visitor to Ireland, where he researches his books about the Irish Revolutionary Period. In this interview, Joe talks about his life from growing up in the 1950s to his experience of the turbulent 1960s, the Vietnam War, and also his own military career. He was part of the elite 82nd Airborne Division, a rapid response infantry unit of the U.S. Army. The last time he was in town, Joe sat down with me in the studio to talk about his life. And we bring you that conversation now. I'm joined now by Joseph E.A. Connell. Joe, you're the author of 11 books about the Easter Rising, the War of Independence, Michael Collins's Intelligence Network, many other aspects of the Irish Revolutionary Period. I would be fascinated to find out in the course of this interview how you got interested in Irish history, although I'm sure the name Connell has some, something to do with it at least. Whenever you join us on the show to talk about those subjects, you always do so from a particular point of view. And it's a point of view that's very, very much formed, I assume, by by your own military background. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your military experience uh, and, you know, a little bit about your, your life in general. But can we start with the America of your childhood? You know, when you were around, you know, before, in those formative years between the age of, say, 10 and 13, before you become a lousy teenager. Well, I was born in Colorado, and I was born in a relatively small town, the town of Pueblo, which the, everybody knows that name, if for no other reason than that was the name of the ship that was captured by the North Koreans kind of thing. But it was a relatively small town, and as I look back on it from a long ways away, it was a very simple existence. Uh, we didn't have great problems, uh, but I was fortunate enough that I traveled a good deal. So I went to California. I, I was in New York, or I was around the country, and I, I don't think that I understood very much of what was going on outside the, the country, but I became extraordinarily interested in politics when I was young. The very first set of, of political conventions I remember were 1956 with Adlai Stevenson on one side and Dwight Eisenhower on the other side. In those days, you only had three television networks, and I was fascinated by them. And I was especially fascinated by the, the Democratic convention. The Republican convention was very staid and dull, and everybody stayed in their seats and did nothing. And the Democrats in 1956 were throwing things at each other and screaming <laughs> and hollering, and they haven't stopped since. And I thought, this is the greatest This is the greatest TV I could ever watch in my entire life. So I, was, I think I was very simplistic when I was a child. But I started to look at outside of the, the, the confines of Pueblo, Colorado. Now, you at some point you moved to to California. How different was 
California was I know you were you were you were in university in San Francisco for example from Pueblo California was a giant culture shock to me I, I, I go there as an 18 year old not having the slightest idea of, of what California was uh, I get to San Francisco it, it, this is in 1965 I was in San Francisco in 1967 for the summer of love and so when you take a look at San Francisco in, in those days and the Haight-Ashbury which was just a, a hop skip and a jump from the University of San Francisco campus and you look at Berkeley in those days and you look at the the war in Vietnam which was raging and you and I go back to Colorado and I think this isn't these are in two entirely different worlds but I, I became just in love with California and the lifestyle out there and for the most part of my life I, I grew up there mentally and I stayed in California for most of my life. Now, one of the people who would have been also in the University of uh, San Francisco a little bit after you, um, and I've read his account of it, was uh, the great American journalist, maverick American journalist, Warren Hinkle. And as far as he was concerned, the University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit university, was extremely conservative. I mean, how how much out of kilter was it with what was going on, uh, as you say, a few kilometres away in in Haight-Ashbury? As I look back on it now, it was very much so. If you take a look at Haight-Ashbury, if you take a look at Berkeley at the very same time that was going on there, if you take a look even at the at the City College of San Francisco or San Francisco State, all of which are just you know covered by a hand, hand span on, on the map, the University of San Francisco was very, very conservative. I was in ROTC there at the time. That's how I ended up getting my military commission. But in fact, there was no one there who was throwing rocks at the military or the ROTC troops when we were in, in University of San Francisco. Francisco, but while Berkeley did and San Francisco State also had ROTC units, they were very much under attack by the students of their own university. Yeah, you were never called out to quell student riots in, in Berkeley by any chance, were you as a member of the ROTC? ROTC is Officer Training Corps, by right. the way, in case people aren't familiar with the, the expression. No, we weren't. But but I will say one thing. For example, the, the, the United Nations met for the very first time in San Francisco. And it, when I was there, the, uh, the unit that I belonged to was the flag bearers of the 25th anniversary of that. And that was in downtown uh, San Francisco at the time. There were probably about 40 of us, each of whom held a flag of the original members of the United Nations. About 40, not the 200 nations that belong to it now. (laughs) Um, Now, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned hippies, you mentioned Haight-Ashbury, you mentioned the Summer of Love in 1967. People I've spoken to who were very much involved in that uh, talk about how it got very, very nasty very, very quickly. Um, Now, I don't know how how we how you would remember it? You weren't obviously directly involved in it, but uh, uh, I mean, would you empathize? Would you sympathize with that point of view? I would agree with it. At the very start, I remember the tour buses going through at Haight-Ashbury with all the people from mid-America just looking out the windows at, at all these crazy people dressed so funnily, and, and, and it was strange. And it did go downhill very, very quickly. Uh, I remember we went to the park, though, very often to watch the free concerts of the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane, and, and we, 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 just, we took this as a form of life. It was just, it was just different at that time. And, and I think that when we lived through it there, I'm not sure that the people in Colorado and I'm not sure that people in Iowa knew what was going on in San Francisco at all. 
Where were you in 1968? Because 1968 is obviously a seminal year. Mm. It's a very violent year in in America. Death of Martin, you know, assassination of Martin Luther King, assassination of, of Bobby Kennedy, the Chicago Convention, the the police riot basically at the Chicago Convention. So what was what was going through your head when you were watching all of this going on around you and maybe thinking society is about to collapse? I remember that very clearly for a couple of reasons. Uh, in 1968, in a, uh, I can't remember the date, but I had broken my arm at Fort Ord in a leadership reaction course in the Army. And I remember coming back to San Francisco, and I'd gone to Letterman General Hospital, and it was just packed with, with returnees from Vietnam. And I went there about four weeks later to get the cast off of my arm, and the uh, military doctor pressed my thumb and said, is that hurt? And I about went through the roof, and he said, you got a broken thumb, too, and we got to fix that. And... He said, we can put you in a hospital overnight if I give you anesthesia or we'll just break it. And I remember my girlfriend had taken me there and I looked at the men there who were so shot up and I said, I can't stay here. And he broke my thumb and she said she heard the crack outside the room of him breaking my thumb and putting it back in a cast. And I went back and that was the time when I went back to my rooms and the city was locked down because of the riots, because of the death of Martin Luther King. I remember it, it very, very carefully for my own reasons, perhaps. Now, you were a member of uh, one of the most elite divisions in the in the U.S. Army. I mean, people talk about the Marines, but uh, essentially the 82nd Airborne uh, Division has done as much, if not more, uh, historically than the, the Marines, you know, in, in terms of the history of the, of the U.S. Army. Um, were you always destined for the 82nd Airborne or were you chosen? I mean, can you say, I want to join the 82nd Airborne or do you wait until somebody picks you and says, OK, you're, you have the right stuff for the 82nd Airborne. If you look at the shoulder patch of the 82nd Airborne that you wear on your left shoulder, it's two opposing A's. The two opposing A's come from the All-American Division in World War I. It's got a, a record that's second to none. It went into, uh, you, you see it at, at, on uh, D-Day, you see it at the Bridge of Vermagen when you want to talk about that. When I was in the Army, I went to jump school first, uh, then I went to ranger school, then I applied for the 82nd, and I got into the 82nd. So I, I was going in a military career, uh, in infantry at the time. You applied to it. Uh, I was lucky that I, that I got into there. Uh, but because I, had, I knew where I wanted to go, and I knew that I wanted to do everything I could to keep myself alive because at that time, the life expectancy of a second lieutenant in uh, Vietnam was about 45 days. So I knew the more things I could do to keep alive, the better off I was. And by the time that I applied to get to the 82nd, I had been to jump school, I'd been to ranger school, and I was probably a pretty good candidate to get into the 82nd. Now, you must have known what was going on in, in Vietnam. I mean, things were really, really hotting up in 1968. Then you have the Tet Offensive as well in, where was it, end of January, beginning of February. So were you determined that you were going to go to, to Vietnam? Were you looking forward to going to Vietnam? Were you gung-ho about it? No, no, I was not looking forward to it, but I certainly knew that that was in the, in the offing. Um, basically, uh, Tet, when it starts, it changed everything. It changed the entire complexion of the war, mostly because, again, the kind of things that we've talked about before on other programs with regard to politics and guerrilla wars, it changed the Americans' opinion of the war. And after Tet, the Americans thought they'd been lied to by their government. And within a year, they had started withdrawal some troops from, from Vietnam. 
Tet changed everything. And by the time I was uh, commissioned then in 1969, the war was not, I would not say it was winding down, but you could certainly see the winding was coming. It was, it, it was going to, 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 the withdrawal was coming. And by the time I got assigned to the 82nd, uh, the very first, when I first got there, the very first thing that they were assigned to do was to go to Amman, Jordan. And in fact, they, they did not go there. They turned, they turned around and came back. But by this time, uh, the the war was very much on its way down, and if you were in the military uh, during the, the 60s and the very early 70s, you were going to Vietnam. That that was not a question of of how you were going to do it or how you're going to get there. It was sort of, sort of just a question of when. Well, that's where military careers were definitely being made at the time. But in I mean, in your training, did you have the sort of classic 82nd Airborne Division training that uh, people would have had before you for for World War Two? for Korea, etc., or did you have counterinsurgency training? Because that's what the Vietnam War essentially was about. Well, there's a difference between the approach to guerrilla war in the East and the West. In in the West, what you see is a guerrilla war like the Irish War of Independence, where the guerrillas are separate, the counterinsurgents are separate, and they look at that as simply a way to to pursue the war. In the East, it's entirely different. If you look at Ho Chi Minh, if you look at General Giap, guerrilla war is a step on the way to conventional war. And in fact, you have in Vietnam, you had General Giap in the Army of North Vietnam, and you had Ho Chi Minh with the Viet Cong. But the training that we had going through it and the training they still did in um, the 82nd was we would have training in what we called Vietnamese villages. They would have tunnels. You would you'd have to go. So you were trained for the war that was there. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's still probably the case in the military. You're always training for the last war. Hmm. You know, by the time I got to the 82nd, the Vietnam War was on the way out. And so we were still training for the war that we should have trained for 10 years before that. I can't imagine that you would have been great in the tunnels of Coochie. You are very, very tall indeed. And uh, I've interviewed a number of people who were involved in that. Very, very small, very, very stocky. No, that, you would not have, not have done well. I would not have done. They, they were very, and the, the tunnel rats, as we call them, they mm. were a totally different mindset. I don't know how possibly they could have done it. Uh, absolutely extraordinary mindset. Um, now, people would probably be expecting us now to have a conversation about your participation in the Vietnam War. That never happened. What happened? No, as, as I say, I was just at the very rump end of it. By the time I got in the military, the war was coming down. Uh, I think that I think that at, at that time, we'd learned a lesson in America. I think when I was growing up, you asked at the very outset of this interview what America was like. I think that most people in America believe the government. And I think that there was very much of a mindset of believing the, believing the government. I think Vietnam changed that and certainly changed that for me. And one became, if not skeptical or cynical, at least somewhat more of seeking educated, educated guesses as to what the government is doing. And I think that remains today. I think there's that cynicism in America that people don't believe the government just because the government says so. But you were not physically fit to go to Vietnam, were you not? Well, I'd already had one operation on my leg. And then by the time I got to the 82nd, uh, on a jump, I messed up my leg a little further. And, and they basically put a profile on my leg, which, which actually meant if anything happens to you, you're on your own. And so I went through five physicals. Strangely enough, I went through five physicals with the same physician who kept making me disqualified. And I would go back. But because they had so much money in me, they did not want to get rid of me. 
but he kept saying, you can't do this. And I had the last three times I went there, I'm not even sure he even had me take a look at my leg. He just simply looked at me again, shook his head and signed off on the papers. Now, I, over the years, have interviewed a number of uh, Vietnam War veterans. One of the things that is common to all of them is a form of survivor guilt. It's worse with some than it is with others. You weren't physically in Vietnam, but there must still be an element of survivor's guilt because I have to assume that many people that you trained with would have gone to Vietnam and would have been killed. Far too many. Um, I had a brother who just recently passed away. God bless him. But for years he lived in D.C., and I'd go visit him for years, and I can't tell you exactly, but it was probably 15 years after I started visiting him in D.C. before I could bring myself to go to the Vietnam Memorial. What was that like? I've been there a couple of times, and I had nothing to do with the Vietnam War. I was a child when the Vietnam War was being fought. I was a child who was very interested in the news. I knew what was going on. When I went to the Vietnam Memorial, I cried. What was your reaction when you went there? Well, I hope I don't cry right now, actually. Um, it's a, an extraordinarily emotional kind of a thing. And I don't remember the young woman's name, who uh, the, the uh, architect who designed it. But whatever possessed her to design it the way she did and, and to make the memorial the way it was, it's it, entirely a different thing than any other memorial in, in D.C., uh, not just the Jefferson or Lincoln Memorial, there's a memorial to the uh, Korean War, etc. It's so simple, it's so stark, it's so striking. And when you put that in someone's mind like mine, um, it's, it's very hard to explain. Mm. I mean, you walk into it and it starts off, it's, it's very, very low and there are yeah. a couple of names and it's actually done chronologically. It starts yes. off back in the 1950s with the first uh, military advisors who have died there. And then as you walk into it, the granite, the black granite wall rises on your left hand side and there are more and more names until by the time you get to the middle of it, it's probably, well, you know, it, it would be, wouldn't be as far above you because you're taller than I am. But, you know, it will be a few feet above you and then you walk out of it and you're you're going in the opposite direction so the names begin to fizzle out and by the time you get to the mid 1970s you're back in the in the early 1950s it's and one of the things that struck me going there was that you would see men um, of a certain age and uh, they would have pencils and they mm -hmm. would have pieces of paper and they would be basically tracing out the names of of people they knew um, you know possibly people in their own their own divisions. It's an extraordinarily affecting experience, isn't it? It is. It's, um, it's quiet. It is. It has to be quiet. Have to say... I'm struggling right now, but it would be almost impossible to talk there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Now, you are... An excellent, you're a fantastic, popular historian. You, re, you write history books that people can actually read. Uh, they're not academic history books, but they are as well-researched as any academic history book. Why Irish history? You could have, you know, you could have made a, a career as a popular historian writing about American history. You would have had far more readers because there are basically far more people in America who would buy your books. Why Irish history? 
I think it just struck me at the time, it, 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 again, the convergence of, of, of events. I used to come to Ireland about 25 years ago, and I was playing some golf at the time, and i go play golf in the morning, and I'd walked around Dublin, and you and I walked around Dublin 15 years ago or something. The fact of the matter is, is that I, I was buying books, I was trying to educate myself on Irish history, and as an old military person, I would go to some place, and I'd look look at and I'd say this is this is a battlefield this is just like Gettysburg or this is just like water uh, Waterloo and yet the people of Dublin didn't seem to understand it I went by this morning I went by Mount Street Bridge years ago I walked in from Dunleary just because I wanted to see what that was like I was wearing just a pair of slacks I had a backpack full of water uh, to try and put my mindset in the British soldier who came there seasick probably never seen the ocean before to walk all that way in one of those big thick uniforms and I get to Mount Street Bridge and think oh okay, what's going on? You get to Clan William House, and there is a Clan William House there now, but mm, it is not, not the, the same, same as it yeah. was then. It's on the same footprint. And, and I just looked at this, and I could sit at the bridge, and I could look and think, geez, all these people who died here, the, the, the placement of the, of the, of the, uh, the Irish was, was just perfect. Was it luck? Uh, what, did they know what they were doing? Was it, was it a totally lack of uh, ability on the part of the British? If you take a look at Clan William House, there were seven Irishmen in there, they had four different kinds of weapons using four different kinds of ammunition. It, it, when you look at it from a military point of view, the British were so much better, and yet the Irish did quite well. So as I went and looked at Irish history for so many, so many years, it just developed into a uh, into sort of a passion for me. I will say I'm not alone in that. I, I once gave a lecture, and there was a man who was in the Irish Defense Forces. And he retired. And, and one of his great joys is, is setting up road courses for uh, rallies. And he was in uh, Belgium, he told me one time, walking around, set up a course, just looked at the hill and thought, I bet there's a military position on the top of that hill. Walked to the top of the hill and there were ruins up there. If you have that military mindset, you're always thinking, where would I put my people or where would the other guy be? Given your background, when you think of the Irish Revolution and when you think of the IRA, when you think of the flying columns, do you think of the Viet Cong? Do you think of Castro and Che Guevara? Oh, absolutely. If you take a look at them, if, if you take a look at, at, at the Israelis, for example, when you, t- when you take a look at Vladimir Jabotinsky, he was taught by the Irish. Uh, he was taught by a man that, that was called Captain Swift at the time. And you had uh, Colin Gubbins, who was over here, who became the head of the uh, SOE in, in the World War II. And he always credited a great deal of what he learned here in Ireland in that sort of way. Castro read, read uh, the books about the Irish War of Independence. Uh, it's che Guevara was a lynch. Che Guevara's grandmother came from uh, from Galway, but it, it's very important to compare Che Guevara and the Irish War of Independence, and I think it, it shows a lot of what's going on. Uh, in, in a 1964 report that the Russians made in, uh, in secret and then released it in 2002, uh, Guevara was uh, described as just just a roving incendiary and revolutionary. He was always very confrontational. Castro was someone who kept Guevara uh, under under control, if you will. And when, when Guevara was pushed away from Cuba by Castro, he went to Bolivia, went to the Congo, he never, ever succeeded very well as a, as a guerrilla. And if you look at it, it's because Guevara was a military guerrilla. Castro was a political guerrilla. Military guerrillas lose. Political guerrillas may win. So there's a huge difference, but they definitely took everything out of it. And unfortunately... If you read the papers today, almost any day, you'll read in any kind of a war of IEDs. Uh, 
Very, very unfortunately, because the first IEDs in war were used by the Irish in the War of Independence. Um, your talk about Castro and uh, Che Guevara a, as a political revolutionary or a military uh, revolutionary brings me to my last question. I don't think anybody has written has written more, certainly nobody has written better about the War of Independence than you have. Simple final question, Collins or Dev? <laughs> Let me rephrase the question. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> at, a, at a seminar one time or at, a, at a, a conference one time, someone asked me, would you like Collins? And it struck me then in silence almost as much as yours did. I don't think I would like to sit and have too many drinks with Dev. I would love to have sat and had drinks with Collins. He would have drunk you under the table. Well, he would have. That's very true. He would have. However, I don't think I would have liked to work for Collins. I don't think I would have trusted working for Collins. I would not want to have been one of his colleagues in the in the cabinet. I certainly wouldn't want to have been one of his subordinates. Uh, you would not have liked to have been a member of the squad, in other words. I, I don't think I would have been any good at it. I, I think that I would have been asking too many questions. But I, I, in terms of was he successful at what he did? Yes. He, he, they weren't saint. He, he wasn't a saint and the others weren't either. Uh, would somebody else in, in that position? I don't know. He had so many jobs and he had, and the multiplicity of the jobs was was increased by the centrality of each of them. If they had not been a Collins, I'm not sure there would have been a war of independence. But would I have liked him? I'm not so sure I can say that. Okay, I'm going to take that as a Collins, though. <laughs> Joe Connell, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, thank you, Miles. Thank you so very much. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Jamie Doyle on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.